grace and our salvation, how we're saved by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But you know, grace is, is more than just the way we get saved. It is truly amazing all the way around. It's an amazing grace. And you know, if you study grace for very long, pretty soon, you'll just be overwhelmed by the grandeur of grace. And, and you realize that you don't really understand the magnitude of grace. If you want to catch up, the uh, first in this series is on the website, uh, churchatdolores.com, and go to Sermon Archives, and uh, it's listed there, Amazing Grace. Uh, because we understand, I think, that our salvation is by grace. We've, we've been taught that since we were toddlers, those of us who have been in church. Uh, our salvation is great. It's by grace. And as great as that is, it's only the tip of a large cone of delicious Bible truths that really take a whole lifetime to digest. I want to tell you a parable, a story, uh, about a man who had five sons. And it's a longer story than I, than I normally tell in, when I'm doing a sermon. But it's the, basically the first chapter in uh, Max Lucado's book, In the Grip of Grace. And so, you know, I, I would recommend, it's a study of Romans. I would recommend that book to you at, at any point. But he tells, he, he starts it by telling this parable about a man who lived in a beautiful country. He lived in a castle. He had many, many acres. He also had five sons. And on the border of the river, on the edge of the property, was a raging river. And the boys had firm instructions that they were never to go near that river. Then one day, the four younger boys, a little bit of rebellion, ventured too close to the river, and it got them, and it swept them down the river. And when the river finally spit them out, they were a long way from home, and they had no idea how to get back there. So they started out by just having a meeting, and they had a little campfire and a place where they waited together, thinking that the father, their dad, would come and get them as soon as he could. But over time, as that didn't happen and the father didn't come, the boys kind of went their separate ways. One moved into a village with the local natives and made himself a, a mud and grass hut and began acting just like the people that lived in the land and uh, thought that he had a mansion, a mud mansion. He'd come from a castle, but he thought he had a mud mansion that he was living in. The second brother was so appalled by the first brother, by the way he was living and the things he was doing, that he made him a little camp up on the hillside above the village so he could watch his brother and he could keep track of all the things that his brother did so that when they got back to the father, he could report his brother to the, to the father and tell him all the things that he had done. The third brother finally decided that he was tired of waiting for the father to appear 
So he began to construct a passage in the river. Rock by rock, he was going to build a passageway back up the river to, uh, to his home. Uh, many, many, many miles away. Uh, he didn't even know how many miles away it was. And the fourth brother just kept wondering what happened to his brothers. How come they all went those ways? And then one day, the elder brother, the oldest brother, the one who didn't get swept down the river, showed up in the land. Uh, he was there to take them home. He was there to take them back to the father. But the brother that was living in the village in his mud castle wouldn't even listen to him. He was so happy living in the mud in his hut. He didn't believe the older brother really came to take him home. He accused the older brother of trying to steal his mud mansion. You're just trying to take what I've built for myself. The, uh, the brother on the hill, the one who was watching the first brother, he wouldn't go with the older brother. He said, I'm too busy doing this important job of recording the sins of the brother in the village. You know, somebody needs to do this. And so I'm not going with you. And the brother who was building the passage in the river said he couldn't go home with the older brother because he had been disobedient to the father and he needed to work his way back so that the father would forgive him. So only the youngest brother went back to the castle with the oldest brother whom the father had sent to get them. So Lucado sums it up this way. <clears throat> he says all four brothers heard the same invitation each had an opportunity to be carried home by the elder brother the first said no choosing a grass hut over his father's house the second said no preferring to analyze the mistakes of his brother rather than admit his own sin the third said no thinking it wiser to make a good impression than an honest confession and the fourth said yes, choosing gratitude over guilt. I'll indulge myself, resolves one son. I'll compare myself, says the other. I'll save myself, determined the third. I'll entrust myself to you, decides the fourth. That's what the book of Romans is about. It's about those four brothers. And each one of us are one of those four brothers. Which one are we? And this is the question of living by grace. Do we live by grace or by what we can do? Last week when we talked about salvation by grace, we talked about being justified. So how are we justified? And, and we understand that. We're justified by grace, not by works. Here's the definition of justification. Justification is the act of God. Get this? It's the act of God whereby a believer, whereby a sinner is made right with God, saved, converted, and born again. So it's an act of God. It's something that God does. It's not something that we do that gets us saved. So what about glorification? Glorification is 
defined as going to heaven, to, to be given the heavenly body and end up with God in heaven. How do we arrive in heaven? Here's the definition of glorification. Listen to the first words. The act of God. Get it? It's the act of God whereby a believer is finally at home with God in the glorified state. We get to heaven because of God's work, not because of ours. In Romans 8.30, Paul says, And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So is it by grace or works? How do we get to heaven? By grace or by works? Everybody in unison say, by grace. We know that. You want to go to heaven? You want to finally sit in heaven? Sitting with Christ in the heavenlies? There's only one way. And that's by grace. That's how that happens. He isn't going to check you out on some heavenly scale and weigh your good deeds and your bad deeds. It's by grace. It's by His deeds that we get to heaven. So now we come to this second section. That was all a reminder of last week. Now let's talk about this. Well, if there's salvation or justification and glorification, what's left? Well, in the middle, there's living life on the earth right now. And it's called sanctification. How are we sanctified? Sanctification... Here's the definition. The process by which a believer grows in respect to his spiritual life, learning and living a life of holiness. In other words, sanctification is becoming holy. Sanctification is becoming like Christ. Sanctification is living life day by day, seeking to be like Jesus Christ. A lot of people who believe in salvation by grace through faith and a lot of people who believe that we're going to get to heaven by grace believe that sanctification is by works. That we work hard for our salvation, for our sanctification. We work hard at commitment. We discipline ourselves and we prove ourselves then to be holy. The problem with that is in order to be proved holy, you have to be 100% holy perfect. 99.9% is a flunking grade on God's curve. It takes 100%. So let me ask you, does anyone obey God enough to be saved? I don't. I don't. Does anybody obey him enough to stay saved? I don't think so. So by God's standards, even with our very best efforts, we flunk out. Uh, We fall short of God's absolute standard. If anyone thinks he doesn't fall short, he's full of pride. And pride is a sin in itself. He's already fallen short. It all goes back to grace, without which we are a dead duck. Or as Mephibosheth said, a dead dog. That's what we are. The lame and outcast son of Jonathan called himself a dead dog. 
And that's why an understanding of grace is so important. We need to understand this principle. Holiness or sanctification is when we have mastered sin. But Paul tells us how that happens. Listen to what he says in Romans 6, 14. For sin shall not be master over you because you are doing so well. That's not what he said. Sin shall not be master over you for you are not under law but under grace. We live under grace. We're not mastered by sin because we obey the law but because of God's grace. And anytime we feel like we become holy by our righteous living, we're in danger of becoming like one of those three brothers, the first three brothers. Either the judging brother, I may not be perfect, but I'm better than you, right? Or the working brother, sure, that if we just try hard enough, we can work our way to the Father's house. Or the indulging brother, Hey, it doesn't make any difference anyway. I'll just live however I want. I don't believe in God anyhow. We become one of those three. Scripture teaches us that under grace, God has taken care of our sins. In Psalm 103, he says, He has separated them as far from us as east is from west. Psalm 103.12, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Isaiah says, he has put them behind his back. Verse 17 of chapter 38. Lo, for my own welfare I had great bitterness. It is you who has kept my soul from the pit of nothingness, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. Micah says he hurled them into the sea. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast out all their sins into the depths of the sea. Isaiah says he promises to forget them. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. He wiped out the whole record of them. In Colossians, Paul tells us, that we're totally free from accusation. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in the fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. You get the idea? It comes from grace. God's forgiven us. He set us free. He set us free to live for him. Now, there's, there's four possible responses to that kind of grace. Not just the grace of salvation, but the grace of holy living, the grace of sanctification. When we have such a loving Father, there are different ways that we can respond to that. Like the indulging brother, we can decide just to jump in and camp in sin and just live there. Paul talks about that in Romans 6. He says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? In Romans 6, he says, What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? May it never be. In Jude chapter 1, verse 4, Jude says, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, 
ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So grace is not the license to do as you please, but the power to do as you should. The elder brother came to the hut in the valley to give the indulging brother the opportunity, the power, the ability to choose to do what was right. This was in the grace of the father, no matter what he had done, no matter where he had been. It wasn't that the, old, that the brother was okay with what he was doing, but he was offering him grace to go back home. So we can act like the indulgent brother. We can act like the judging brother. We can compare ourselves to others, declaring ourselves okay, pointing out the faults of others while we do nothing ourselves. Or even if we're doing everything we can, we compare what we do to what others are doing and feel pretty good about ourselves. But remember, God doesn't grade on the curve. We struggle with that, don't we? Come on. There's a little bit of the judging brother in all of us. And like the working brother, we can be embroiled in legalism. Having begun by grace, we want to be perfected by works. Paul spoke to the Galatians about that very, very directly. He said to them, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of law or by hearing with faith? And of course, Paul expected the answer. Well, we received it by hearing with faith. So then he says, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he then who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. You foolish Galatians is an expression of exasperation. Paul is perplexed. He doesn't understand. Essentially, their claim is that entry-level gospel proclaimed by Paul was sufficient for salvation, but it was insufficient for the higher spiritual realities offered only through works of the law. So the working brother, deserting grace, continues working his way home. If salvation is not the work of God from first to the last, if salvation is not the work of God from the day you accept Christ as Savior till the day you stand on Jordan's stormy banks on the other side in heaven with God. If it's not the work of God from first to last, then the preaching of the gospel is vanity. The cross of Christ was a farce and the gift of the Holy Spirit means nothing. That's how important it is. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 1, Paul says, Jesus was publicly portrayed. You know what that means? Jesus was put up as a poster. You know, if you drive on any of the country roads around here, you see all kinds of posters. No hunting. No trespassing. Private road. Stay out. You see all of those everywhere. 
Sometimes you feel like they're on every other tree. Jesus posted on, a, on the cross, the poster that he put on the cross said, I am now responsible for your debts. People put in the, in the classifieds in the newspaper, I'm no longer responsible for somebody's debts. It's a legal thing. On the cross, Jesus posted, I am now responsible for your debts, for your sins. I pay the debt you owe. It's simple. You cannot live the Christian life. No matter how many works you do, you'll only find yourself further behind. We've been talking with our son, Nathan, in Texas. Uh, you know, they've been under that weather watch, that weather freeze. They, they were without power for 36 hours, I think, and without water for three or four days. Uh, they went out in the yard. Thankfully, it snowed. They went out in the yard and gathered up all the snow and put it in the bathtub. And as it melted, they used it to flush their toilet. I mean, you know, that's... Uh, that, that's where they've been for the last... Uh, the, but the thing is, is that they live in Austin, and Austin, uh, they, they get their electricity from the city of Austin. In other places in Texas, there are residents that get it strict, directly from wholesalers. And the wholesale price of electricity got up to $9,000 per kilowatt hour. They've got bills they'll never be able to pay. I mean, you know, if you're if you're not Ross Perot, you can't pay those kind of bills. So, so what do you what what do you do? You you never catch up, and that it's that way in the Christian life. Your debt is so deep you can never pay it on your own. Only through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the best kept secrets among Christians is this. Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. He not only purchased my forgiveness of sins, he not only purchased my ticket to heaven, he purchased for me every blessing, every answer to prayer you'll ever receive. Every one of them. No, no, no exceptions. We live by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We were brought into the kingdom by grace. We're sanctified by grace. Our temporal blessings are by grace. Our spiritual blessings are by grace. We're motivated to obedience by grace. We're called to serve by grace. We're enabled to serve by grace. We receive strength to endure trials by grace. We're glorified by grace. No wonder John Newton can write, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. I once was lost, but now I'm found. T'was grace that brought me safe this far, and grace will bring me home. We are sanctified like the youngest brother. Motivated by fear, and motivated by love, both. 
That's what motivates us to grace. Paul says to the Corinthians in chapter 5, verse 11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men but are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your conscience. The, the respect, the glory, the awesomeness, the fear of the Lord drives us. And then three verses later in verse 14, he says, For the love of Christ controls us, have included this, concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. So which is it? Is it the fear of the Lord or the love of Christ which compels us? The younger son was afraid in Lakato's story. He was afraid of the river. He was afraid of the mountains. He was afraid of the wilderness. He was afraid of being lost. He was afraid of duplicating his brother's errors. But his trust was in the father and the father's plan and in the son the father sent for him because he knew the love of the father was real. To live in the amazing grace of God, there's only one thing we need to understand. Therefore, having been buried with him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. That's how we walk. That's how we walk through this life. We understand that who we were was buried with Christ, and now we're able to walk with him in a new life. Romans 6, 6, Paul says, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. So understand, we're not the slave of sin any longer. At least, we, we don't have to be. So understanding that about who we are, therefore, we have four decisions or four things that, that we can do, decisions we can make. Number one, Paul says, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. You're dead to sin and alive to God. That's Romans 6.11. Do not let sin reign in your life. That's Romans 6.12. Don't present your body to sin. Just don't do it. That's Romans 6.13. But instead, present yourselves and the members of your body as instruments of righteousness. Present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Now I know what some of you are thinking. Well, duh. That's obvious. We, we get that. But there remains some of us who don't get it all. We, we struggle with one of those difficulties in living the Christ. You know, what the, you know what the biggest hindrance to living the Christian life and the grace of God is? The biggest hindrance. Anybody want to guess? Pride. Pride. That's what it is. Hmm? Did you say that too? Marva said it first. She said it out loud. 
she, she whispered it to herself, and I can't read lips. We, don't, we just simply don't want to admit that we are as helpless to be holy as God says we're helpless. We think we can do it. Think about it. The hut brother, the hut building brother, was satisfied living with his own, his, his own work, his own sin, his ability to handle his own life. The judging brother was, was happy comparing himself to those around, and he didn't realize how bankrupt he was as he was looking at how sinful his brother was. The brother building his steps up the river didn't realize that, you know, you, you're not capable of earning your way to heaven. You know, think, think what it would take to earn your way to heaven and ask yourself, how would, you, how would you ever pay for it? I mean, how would you pay for one kilowatt hour of electricity in Texas this week? James 4 says, but he gives us more grace. More grace. That's why God says, that's why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And Peter says, young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older, all of you. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Isn't that cool? That's amazing. The Christian life isn't about performance, it's about grace. It's all grace. And it happens when we trust the Lord, His Word, and we just do His bidding. God warned Cain, sin is crouching at the door, and sin is crouching at our door as well. Sometimes in the lust that leads us to indulge, sometimes in the pride that leads us to compare, sometimes in the legalism that leads us to work. In every case, we make ineffective the work of grace in our life. As God's fellow workers, Paul says to the Corinthians, we urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Let's live in God's